Good morning, church. It has uh, been a spectacular weekend for Ruth and I, and, and um, we just wish we could park here on the mountain for some weeks together. Uh, I think one of the reasons it's, so, it's been so thrilling for me personally is that this is one of the few places I get to go where I get to use my heart language, you know. Don't, don't, don't you laugh, but many of you are just like me. English is your second language, you know. You, you first speak this uh, thing that we do in the hills of Kentucky and, and, uh, and Tennessee. Um, my wife and I had learned our second language. It's called Tosa language, and it's got three clicks in it. You've got a for the X, and you've got a for the C, and you've got a for the Q, and just a fun language and but you know doing a doing a language other than your heart language is uh is you know restrictive and you have to be simple and you have to struggle and so I hadn't spoken my heart language for about six months and we were invited to go back across the border from the black homeland of Transkei into South Africa and a Baptist English-speaking church wanted me to preach on Sunday night. And I was so excited to get to speak in my heart language. I just gave them everything I'd been storing up for about a year. And, and, uh, and you know, I should have been aware that British English and Kentucky English might not have exactly the same nuances. But after the service, you, you, you know, uh, sweet... Uh, gray-haired lady came up to me and she said oh I just love your enthusiasm I just love how excited that you are and 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 she she hesitated and she said to me uh, uh, I'm a I'm an English speaker what what were you speaking in <laughs> she didn't understand a doggone word that I was saying but uh, bless her heart <laughs> You all do know that's, uh, that's hidden language, right? You're really saying something else. Uh, I, I, I want to say something to you over and over this morning that I rang through my night uh, in, in my head. I woke up with it this morning. Uh, they had a, a slide uh, up here uh, yesterday about Nepal, uh, how the country had... 353, something like that, uh, uh, people groups in Nepal and how 313 or 320, some of them are unreached, unengaged uh, 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 people groups. And what the slide didn't have is that two weeks ago in Nepal, they passed a law that made it illegal for you to share Christ and, and lead a Buddhist to convert to Christianity in that country. So guess what we've had to do with all of our people since that law was passed? We left them right where they are. Because as Jesus said, render under Caesar what is Caesar and render under God what is God and your witness has never and will never belong to the government. See, even the young ones can say amen. <laughs> I understand that heart language. But 
in, in those 300 and some people groups, when I look at this face that's hidden behind the piano this morning, I know where that guy's from. I can't say what I'm about to say in his country. And when I look at faces that you've got all over the church, you've got displays that are second to none. They're, they're, they're downstairs and they're upstairs and they're in the foyer and, and some genius and gifted person has just worked tremendously hard. And as I walk by these people, I cannot say what I'm going to say to you because it's not true for them. I can't say to them what I want you to hear ringing from heaven's gates to you this morning, and that is the altar of God is open. I can't say that to four billion people on the planet because they don't have an altar where Jesus is known. They don't have an altar where salvation can be found. They don't have an altar in which that they can anchor their life and say from this holy place I will launch myself across the street to my neighbors and I will launch myself from this place across the ocean to the nations. I can't say to the vast majority of people on the earth today, what I can say to you, the altar of God is open. In Matthew 11, we, we have a very disappointing story. The longer you are in Christianity, the more you read these stories and, and you smile and you say, yeah, it's a good story. It makes good sense. It doesn't make any sense. Here you have John the Baptist, the nearest thing to a pastor that Jesus ever had. Here is a man who, when he was in his mother's womb, danced in his mother's womb when he was near Mary carrying Jesus. Here was a man that said of Jesus, I baptize you with water. There's someone coming that's going to baptize you with fire with the Holy Spirit. He said, that one I'm not worthy to unlatch his sandals. And when he saw Jesus coming from afar, John pronounced clearly to the peoples around him that here comes the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth. And you know the story. If you have any church background whatsoever, uh, you know that John baptized Jesus when John said to Jesus, no, I should baptize you. And Jesus, gonna, Jesus said, you're going to do it my way. That's what we mean when we say the altar is open. We're going to say when we kneel at the altar of God, God, I'm going to do it your way. And billions of people on this planet, I can't say that to them. And therefore, they don't know what are the ways of God today, 2,000 years into Christianity. Shame on us. And John was there when the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove. And the voice of God cried out, this is my son whom I'm, I love whom I'm 
pleased with. And John was such a man of God, such a man of power, he could look the religious leaders in the eye and call them a bunch of vipers, a bunch of snakes. He could look Herod in the eye, who Herod him thinks, thinks of himself that I've got God-like characteristics and nobody can tell me what to do. Uh, that's one of the things we understand by uh, 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 of Muhammad and uh, uh, other religious leaders. They create mo morality by what they do, whereas Jesus was obedient to the entire law of God and submissive to his Father in heaven. And, and here's John looking at Herod when nobody else would stand up to him, not even his own wife, and say, uh, Herod, don't know who you think you are, but like everybody else on this planet, you're under the authority and the judgment of God, and you will not go unpunished if you take your brother's wife to your bed. So John's in jail. And here's a man, uh, eats locusts, but you know what? I've been Jordan, I've eaten locusts. Those little wings get caught in your teeth, you know, and you can actually floss with their legs, you know. You know, it's just very inexpensive, but you can eat a rock if you dip it in honey. And, and here's a guy, you know he's coming if the wind's blowing towards you a mile away, you know, wearing that camel-haired outfit. Have you all been next to a camel? Two things. They're so ugly, they deserve to be eaten. And, and secondly, they stink. And here you have the prophet of God living in the wilderness, mostly unbathed, eating locusts dipped in honey, wearing camel-haired clothes, proclaiming the kingdom of God. This is a man that's got calluses on his feet and on his hands and on his heart. This is the prophet of God for his era and now that he is in prison uh, uh, and Herod is about to take the sword to his head and separate his head from his shoulders, how do you ex expect John to reply? As the first time, 18 years of age, I read the Bible, I expected John to square his shoulders and straighten his back and maybe even stick his finger in the face of the executioner and say, do whatever you want to do. I will die the way I have lived with my head held high and my voice proclaiming the coming kingdom of God. But John lets us down and he sends his disciples to see Jesus and he has them ask Jesus are you the one or do we wait for somebody else what what out of all the people on the earth he is the last one you would expect to 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 say something like that to doubt to question to worry. You think he would proclaim, be courageous and, 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 and aggressive and, and his back is against the wall and he's about to be killed and he wants to know of Jesus, are you whom was prophet, 
prophesied and promised, or do we do, do I wait for somebody else? He doesn't have time to wait for somebody else. He's going to be dead in hours, if not days. Well, John broke my heart. John was not supposed to do that. John was supposed to be the man of God that he had lived. And I spiritually walked away from John the Baptist because he did not die the way I thought he should die. He did not, when things got tough, he, he did not stand up for what he believed. And in my young faith, I was so disappointed uh, in him. And it's worse when Jesus lets you down. Or in a sense, Jesus replied to John in a way that, that confused me. Jesus, are, are, are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? Are you the prophet that was promised that takes away the sins of the earth? John's already said that. What did Jesus answer to him? If you've been in and around any kind of Bible college or seminary, you would expect Jesus to give these big words to say, you go back and tell John I'm the Alpha and Omega. You go back and tell him I'm in the incarnated Word of God. You go back and tell John I, I was preexistent even before the world was made. And Jesus disappointed me so much because he, he didn't say that. He said, go back and tell John what you see going on in the marketplace with me and my followers. Listen to me. How does Jesus authenticate his Messiahship? He said, you go back and tell John what you hear, what you see, the blind see, the deaf hear, the, the, the mute are talking, the lame are walking, the lepers are being cleansed, the dead are being raised, the, the, the gospel, the good news is being preached to the poor people. And he looks at John through his messengers and he says to John, blessed is the one who, who does not stumble on account of me. And God himself through Jesus the Christ says to John, die like a man. Die like you were born to die. John, I can rescue you. I can get you out of that prison just like this. But John, the kingdom of God can benefit more from your death than it can if you live out the rest of your life. And John, if you will die for the sake of the kingdom of God, Thousands of years from now, there'll be this redneck from Kentucky sitting in a church in Tennessee proclaiming the glories of God and telling your story because you died like the man of God you were born to be. Folks, that's in God's job description. God has never promised you anything but a cross. But he's also promised you that if you'll bear it, you inherit the resurrection. But you cannot, you cannot have a resurrection without a crucifixion. But I was so disappointed in John, and, and I was a bit terrified to understand just a little bit at 18 years of age that the way that Jesus has chosen to authenticate his own life is in the marketplace outside of the temple, outside of the synagogues. Jesus authenticates who he is in what he does with us outside of the church in the marketplaces of life. 
But I held this grudge against John. Years later, years later, there's a lot more in the story, but years later, uh, uh, Ruth and I, and now we've got three boys, and, and Mama, how old were they? I can't remember. Um, one was, uh, youngest was going into kindergarten, uh, oldest was going into high school, and, and our middle son was going into middle school, right? Something like that. I should know my boys' uh, birthdays, but there's only one birthday I really have to remember. <laughs> yeah, if I don't do that one, all right. And, and, and so, and so uh, 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 here, here we are in, uh, in South Africa in a place where they'd had missionaries for 250 to 300 years, and Ruth and I, in rereading the book of Acts together, which is a very dangerous thing for a couple to do, we, we defined why God had birthed us and brought us together after 10 years in the pastorate, 10 years on the mission field, that God created Ruth and I to go and tell people who Jesus is, who have little or absolutely no chance to hear, and the uh, two months after we finished reading the book of Acts again together, we had moved to Kenya and were going into Somalia. They told us it would take three to five years to get into that war zone, to get into that famine. Guess what? Doors are all, always closed when you're not willing and you're not ready to walk through them. Because once we got positioned where obedience took us, in three, four, five weeks, we started going into Somalia. And within six months, we're uh, feeding 50,000 people a day. We are resettling refugees. We are doing mobile medical clinics. But you know, after your quiet time or your loud time is what I have with God, after your time with God every morning, your first hour is spent out among Somali people burying around 20 children a day. And you start your day like that for months on end. And some scars will only be healed when you get to heaven. But I got ahead of myself. Uh, I was sent from South Africa to Kenya uh, to a meeting. It doesn't matter where Baptists are. We love to have meetings. And the, there was a problem with this meeting. There was no potluck meal. It was just meetings. And we had a meeting so we could have three other meetings. And, and while I'm there, a very godly leader came to me and said, I hear that you and Ruth and the boys, you're praying about going to the most dangerous place on earth to the Somalis. And with a little bit of pride, I said, yes, we, we're praying about that. We've almost decided. He said, have you ever met a Muslim? No. Have you ever met a Somali? No. He said, well, you might want to do that. And he said, there's a brand new refugee camp down near Mombasa, and I can get you in there through my contacts with United Nations Red Cross with your doctorate in languages and culture and your background in meeting human needs in South Africa, I can get you in there to survey and look at what kind of relief projects we can do in the future. 
and I'm just so excited. I'm going to get in this brand new refugee camp. It's filled with doctors, lawyers, military leaders, professors, uh, university students. It's the cream of the cream that could pay bribes, had money to get out on the ship. They'd been parked in the harbor for three months, and now they're in this brand new refugee camp with chain link fence 10 to 12 feet high with razor wire at the top and one big gate, double gate at the front, one way in, one way out. Man, I can't wait to get there. And I just basically said to him, well, give me a ticket. I'm ready to go. And he grabbed me by the sleeve and pulled me back right next to him. And he said, Nick, I know what you're like. Now, you don't know what's coming after that, but you know it's not going to be nice. He said, I know what you're like. I want you to go there for two weeks, and I want you to keep your mouth shut. Who's been talking to him about me? And he said, I want you uh, to listen. I, I want you to learn. I want you to touch, touch it and taste it. And I want you, before you put you, yourself and your family at great risk, you've got to know for sure that God's hands is on this endeavor. So I just basically still said, give me the ticket and get out of my face. And I went down there, and I stayed there. And I'm telling you what, I walked in there within hours. I met a, a university student named Abdulaziz, and his, his language, his English was so much better than my Kentucky English. And he introduced me to tribal elders and to doctors and lawyers and leaders, and it just felt like doors were opening all over the place. And I didn't know that they were playing me to, to get out of the camp, to get into America, to go to Europe and all this kind of stuff. And I'm just so excited after three days, after three days, after three days, I am so arrogant. I looked at Abdulaziz and I said, Abdi, I want to ask you a very important question. Do you know my friend Jesus? And Abdi just began to shout and he began to yell and men began to run. And, and within, I promise you, 10 minutes, I am pushed against that chain link fence. And, and I've got 50 hostile Muslim men around me. And they're yelling at each other. They're pulling each other's beard. They're grabbing each other's clothing. And all I can hear is Jesus this, Jesus that. Nick here, Ripken there. And my heart is pounding in my chest. And I just said, oh, why didn't I just listen to my leader and keep my mouth shut? And I knew, I knew that I was going to die at that place at that time. And I said, Lord, take care of Ruth. Take care of the boys. They don't even know I'm here. They don't even know where to come gather the pieces and, and, and to pray over the spot that I'm killed. I, I was that afraid, that sure, that terrified. And they argued and argued. And I did not know then that was normal Somali behavior. Somalis are like my family. They're loud. They're pushy. They're, they're in your business. And they know what you ought to do before you meet. they meet you. And, and they're arguing and shoving and pushing. And 20, 30 minutes of this stuff while I'm just getting ready just getting ready to die. And Abdi came back to me, and he's got his arms crossed, and he is so aggressive looking, and, and he says uh, uh, to me, Nick, we don't know your friend Jesus. I thought, here it comes. He said, but Mahmoud thinks he's heard about him. 
and he's pretty sure that your friend Jesus lives in the refugee camp up the road. <laughs> so if you'll go out the gate and go left and go about one kilometer, you know, two-thirds of a mile, and stop at the next camp and ask for Jesus, we almost are positive that he lives there. I said, thank you so much. <laughs> and I went out that gate, and I went right, and I got me a taxi, and I went to Mombasa. And I got me a plane, and I flew to Kenya. And I got me another plane without saying anything to anybody. And I'm flying home to Mama and the boys. And I said to God, you want these people? You can have them. I haven't lost anything here. But I've got to tell you, because you've got a certain image of me after this weekend that's other than I'm a sinner saved by grace. When my backside hit the back seat of that taxi, I was so ashamed. I was so thankful that my calloused hand, calloused heart, calloused feet father wasn't there because he never raised his six boys to run away. And the first time, the first time in my life that I knew that my faith in Christ was going to cost me everything, I ran away. I ran away. I had to apologize to John the Baptist. And I remember flying home 2 o'clock in the morning thinking, what am I going to say to Ruth? How am I going to tell my three sons that their daddy ran away? I can't do this. I can't face her. I can't look the boys in the eye after telling them who we are, what we believe, and the extent that we're willing to lay down our lives that people may know Jesus. I can't tell them I've lied to you since you were born. I was so ashamed. And I made a vow to God on that airplane and said to him, Lord, if you will give me one more chance to go back, if, if you will not close the door on my cowardice, if you will not make me tell Ruth and the boys what I have done, if I don't have to tell my father what I have done, if you'll give me another chance, I promise you this time, I will not make you ashamed of me the way I'm ashamed of myself. And we went back and we did what I've already hinted at you, some of the things that we did. Uh, if you haven't been here this week, you don't know the horror that we experienced of watching 150 believers from Muslim background in those almost eight years we were there all of them were killed except four. And to get kicked out of there, having seen a whole generation of believers wiped out, to get kicked out of there and bury a 16-year-old son after he died of asthma on Easter Sunday morning, to lose our ministry and lose two months to the day our son died, my wife's mother died, it, it, it all felt like crucifixion, with, with no resurrection. And I know, I know that you're not used to having missionaries on your stage and telling you the truth. 
we got kicked out, we did not run away. When we got kicked out of Somalia, Ruth and I spent the next 15 years going to believers in persecution, begging them to teach us, how do you make Christ known? How, how, how do you make Christ known in places where it can cost you everything? How, how do you plant house churches? How do you plant the body of Christ in the homes of Muslims and Jews and Buddhists and Hindus and communist Chinese? How, how do you make Jesus known in such a way that when the persecution comes, it's for who Jesus is and not for who Nick is? Because I had not heard one sermon on that. I had not had one Sunday school class on that. I did not have a college or seminary class on that. My culture, my church, my denomination had edited almost all the crucifixion out of the biblical stories so that we could just believe that God owes us every day uh, just the resurrection and we went to believers in person teach us what you know about living the resurrection in the hardest places on the planet and I went to China and, and the Chinese asked me uh, they told me about themselves and how they do house churches. And, and I watched as 170 leaders, only seven of them had Bibles among themselves. I watched how the house church met different days of the week. They met different times of the day. They met different houses trying to stay ahead of the persecutors. I, 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 I learned that 40% of all the house church leaders evangelists, church planners, elders, deacons, pastors, teachers, men and women had already, 40% had already been in prison for three years. I, I sat for two days with an 83-year-old man that went to prison for three days when he became a Christian. Then uh, later he went to prison for three years for when he became a follower of Christ. And then he went again uh, when he planted the first church for three years. And then again, he went to prison for a uh, nine-year, uh, the, the, the seventh, eighth, and nine-year because he became a leader of a 10 million in his lifetime. Faith in his area went from him to 10 million people. And if God can do that in communist China, what's holding him up from doing it here? Maybe the willingness to go to jail every few years and leading thousands of people to Christ in prison. And so I, I listened and I listened for weeks to the story of the Chinese, but then they asked me about you. They asked me about you. That's why this time together is both a window and, and, and it's both a, a window and, and, and it's a mirror. They asked me about you and I told them about this. And I told them about this weekend. And I told them about this. And I told them about this man. And, and I told them uh, uh, about uh, uh, your, 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 your staff for children and your staff for missions and, and all the things that you do. And the Chinese leaders, tough men, women, been in prison. They begin to sob like little children. You know this vacuum cleaner type of sound. And, and I said, what's wrong? What, what have I said? Uh, they said, you don't understand. I said, Ruth's not here. I don't know what I've done wrong. They said, you really don't understand? I said, Ruth's not here. Don't ask me another time. 
And he said, we've got to know why does Jesus love believers in America more than he loves believers in China? I just was dumbstruck. I said, excuse me? It's just like in Matthew 11, the blind see, the lame walk, and and you've got all the, every church that started in China before 1970 started with miracles of healing. We've documented that. We, we know that to be true. And, and it's just like Matthew 11 coming alive. And I, I said, what are you talking, you really don't understand? I said, I don't have a clue. Oh, they were so angry. They were so hurt. And they said to me, they said to me, Dr. Nick, which is the greatest miracle? That maybe. Like in India, there's one medical doctor for every one million people. Do you hear me that? Nurses, doctors, medical people? It's not just Christianity we keep to ourselves. It's the essence of what Christianity brings we also keep to ourselves. What, what's the greatest miracle, they asked me, Nick? That 100,000 Chinese can be healed by God not even know there is a God, and out of that 100,000, maybe, maybe a 100 of them can figure out their healing came from a God, and maybe 10 of them can figure out his name was Jesus and find salvation through that healing experience. You know, they, they don't find salvation through being healed. They find salvation through Jesus the Christ. They say, which is the greatest miracle, Nick? That or you tell us when you have to have a knee replacement, you're living in Ethiopia, you can call a a Baptist deacon in Jacksonville, Florida and tell him uh, you're going to fly in on Sunday. He will see you on Monday. He'll give you an exam, uh, whatever that MRI or whatever that thing is called, on, on Monday afternoon and Tuesday morning he will take you in the operating theater and he... And the Baptist nurse and the Baptist anesthesiologist, the believers in that hospital, will come into that room and lay hands on you before they put you to sleep and pray in Jesus' name over you. And you have access to that type of care 24 hours a day, seven days a week, which is the greatest miracle, son. You've watched us tear our Bibles into shreds so that every leader could go home with at least one book of the Bible. And you tell us in Ethiopia, you've got seven different versions of the Bible on your desk just for yourself. Which is the greatest miracle, Nick? Which is the greatest miracle? You, you, you've listened. Forty percent of us have already been in prison for three years. And you're telling me there's a church in Tennessee where a man named Mike, if he wants to, can stand here and proclaim Jesus seven days a week, 24 hours a day. He can do it inside a church building or outside of a church building, and he's not going to be beaten. They're not going to take his wife away from him. They're not going to take his kids away from him. They're not going to put him in jail. They're not going to put him in prison for three years. They're not going to torture him. They're not going to kill him, which is the greatest miracle, Nick. You've watched us sit close together and sing our praises to God in the house church, but we can't let the sound go out the door or through the 
thin walls of the apartment because if our neighbors, the policeman, a passerby, hears us singing to Jesus, we're going to be reported, and that night there will be security policemen at our house, and because we were singing, where our voices carried, we get to go to prison for singing. And you tell us, you can have this praise band, you can have this music, you can have these folks in these chairs. You can have Christian radios. You can sing in public, in private, on the air, on the television. You can sing your praises to God 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Nobody goes to jail. Nobody is persecuted. Nobody is harmed. Which is the greatest miracle, son? And I began to weep like a baby. Because what, had, what do I call this where you're sitting this morning? Oh, God, help me. I call this normal. I, I, I call this common. And worse, I call this thing that we call church that's done like this what I deserve. And if I don't like something, I can quit and go somewhere else. When the rest of the world looks at what you have, what you're doing, what, how you get to worship, how God has favored you from his throne. What do you call this? You call this, oh, I'm going to church, just another Sunday. This is just a normal day. It's what we do. This is normal. Well, this is common. Everybody does this. And God, you better have the preacher on the ball this morning. The songs I, I like are the ones better be saying, sung, uh, uh, Lord, uh, uh, you know, uh, I, I deserve everything I get at church. And so, Lord, uh, you better be on the ball and, and, and give me what I, I deserve. And I say to you, what I can't say to most of the world. No, no, yes, I can't say this not only to most of the non, I can't say this to the unbelieving world who has never met a Christian. I can't say this to most of the Christians around the world. What I can say to you, brothers and sisters, the altar of God is open. I'm going to ask our praise team to come because I want to give you a little time to think. Would you all come on back wherever you are? Are they still here? They're coming because I love them. If you don't come, I'm going to come get you. All right. Let's look at this. Can you all imagine walking up here you take this and export it in the places where Ruth and I have been since 1991, and the chances are you're going to jail. You're going to sing there? The chances are, ladies, oh, man, all the fear that happens to the ladies uh, when they're put in prison, you, you, you know the anxiety level goes out the roof. And, and, and you're going to call this normal? They're going to call this normal? 
you know, I wonder how many mornings they get out of when they could sleep in and they think, oh, I've got, I have to go sing. No, they get to go sing. No, no, God has emptied heaven of miracles so that they can come sing. You see, I, I don't really care. I really don't. Whether you believe that Hindus by the tens of thousands, Ruth and I have seen it throughout India among low caste Indians, that by the tens of thousands, Hindus are being healed in Jesus' name. The blind are seeing, the deaf are hearing, the lepers are being cleansed, uh, the gospel's being preached to the poorest people on the earth. And when you ask them, what is your number one illness? They say, I am so demon-possessed. I don't want to live with these demons any longer. I don't care whether you believe that God is providing those kinds of miracles for Hindus. I, 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 I don't care as much that whether or not you believe that God is putting Chinese leaders in prison and they are leading thousands of people to God, to Jesus in prison. That's their miracle. I, I, I don't really care whether or not you believe by the hundreds of thousands, if not the millions, God is sending Muslims dreams and visions. Muslims always have dreams and visions. But God's breaking into their dreams and visions. And they're dreaming of a Bible. And they see a man clothed in white with scars in his head, hands, side, feet. And this man says, I am Isa Messiah. I am Jesus the Christ. And if you will find me, you will find salvation for your soul. And they will travel two, three, four, five years to three and more countries looking for that Messiah. And they can't find him because you and I aren't there. But that's their miracle. What I'm wondering, church, is if this morning we've talked all weekend, all weekend, about reaching our neighbors and our nations. But I think, I think we've been asking you to go too far. Because where it starts is right here. Where it starts is at the altar of God. Where you not only sing, but you actually say, I surrender all. Where you hear Jesus saying softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. Maybe Jesus is shouting. I'm asking you, church. I'm asking you, are you ready to claim your miracle this morning as all of Christianity outside of America sees this? This is not normal. This is not common, and this is not what you deserve. This is a grace gift from the throne of God and the rest of Christianity. See what you get to do as one of the greatest miracles on the face of the planet. I'm asking you, are you going to claim your miracle? The altar of God is open. Will you come and meet him at the point of his miracle to you? Let's stand together.
so sure and stay. My hope is held in your hand. When castles crumble and breath is fleeting, upon this rock I will stand. Upon this rock I will stand. Glory, glory, we have no other king but Jesus, Lord of all. And we raise the anthem, our loudest praises ring, we crown him Lord of Church, what, what is that that you're holding in your hand? It, it, you know, it might be a house. It might be cars. It might be a whatever they call that 401 thing. It, it might be, it might be a, a sweet daughter. It might, it might be a son. It might be a grandchild. You need to hear. The altar of God is open. Open your hand. And give that which you've been holding to yourself to the God of the universe so that all the peoples of the earth can hear that Jesus is Lord of all. The altar of God is open. <laughs> 